0: If you haven't already, please turn in your Bibles back to the Gospel of Matthew. If you are somewhat unfamiliar with the New Testament Scriptures, I'll remind you that Matthew is one of four Gospels, the first of four Gospels. The word gospel means the good news, and the good news in each of these four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, is the good news of the coming of Jesus Christ. Each one of them has a slightly different take. The Gospel of Matthew begins with a genealogy because Matthew is proving to the readers that historically Jesus is linked to the throne of David both through the adoption of his father, Joseph, who was not his real biological father, and specifically through the bloodline of Mary. The Gospel of Mark is a gospel that portrays Jesus as the suffering servant, and therefore it doesn't have a genealogy. It presents him really as the Son of Man, come not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for the elect. Then you have the gospel of Luke, and once again you see a genealogy, and in this case showing that he is truly man and truly God, and therefore takes the genealogy of Jesus, not back to David, but all the way back to Adam. And then you have the Gospel of John. The Gospel of John is meant to show you that Jesus Christ is God, very God, and therefore it begins not with the human genealogy, but with the beginning of the beginning. And it says in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and it was that Word, the second person of the Trinity, that became flesh and dwelt among us. When we get back into these Gospels today, we need to understand that each and every one of them has a context Uh, They weren't just dropped in on us. There's not the expectation that we would naturally understand it. I, I don't think that it's reasonable to assume that anybody who is gathered here together in the church today or anybody addressing the church by way of teaching should naturally understand all of the historical circumstances surrounding the delivery of the Gospels. We have to learn that. We have to go back into history. We have to Dig deep to understand the context. And when we do, I promise, the meaning of this text is going to come to light for you in a way that it probably never has before. So, when I got into this text this week and began to study it to think of how I was going to present it, I originally had a plan, which was to break it down into three sermons. But then I began to realize it really only has two parts, so it became two sermons, and then those two sermons began to blend together because it's all really hinged together by four prophecies, and then there I was with only one sermon and an entire chapter again. Now, I wasn't able to get around this, and I'm going to have to deliver it that way, but instead, the the out that I gave myself was simply this. Uh, We're going to look at this very same text of Scripture two weeks in a row. We're going to look at the same 23 verses, but we're going to look at it from two different angles. The same events, but but from two different vantage points. And so what we're going to do this morning is to look at the context of the Gospel of Matthew. And the context of the Gospel of Matthew is understood historically, but it's also understood by three particular groups of characters. And so what we've done today is break it up, and we're going to talk about the kings, and we're going to talk about the priests, and we're going to talk about the prophets. That's our outline for this morning through all of Matthew chapter 2, the kings, the priests, and the prophets. In order for you to follow along, I've put that in the bulletin for you today, and that's what you have in front of you. It begins with a bit of a space there underneath this term context. And by way of context, I want to approach this from two different angles. Let's begin with the historical context. You may not be aware of this, but as the dawn of the new year approached, and then the new century new millennia, we're speaking here about the time of the birth of Christ, it was actually a time when the Jewish people were very much looking forward with anticipation to their deliverance. There is a theological term that we use when we talk about last things. It's called eschatology. You may have heard of that term before, eschatology. It's the study of last things. And the context to which Matthew writes is a group of Jewish people who were, had a very eschatological fervor. They sensed that it was very soon when the Messiah would come and deliver them from the oppression of Rome, when they would once again see the kingdom established, when they would get back everything they lost in the Babylonian captivity and have never yet regained. And they would be finally underneath the rule and reign of Messiah. And they didn't necessarily believe that Messiah was going to be God Himself, but they knew that He would come and He would deliver them from the Romans. And so as a result, there was all kinds of excitement. And I've looked at this from the vantage point of the Scriptures, but I've also looked at it simply from history. And if you go back and you read historians like Tacitus, in his writings of histories, chapter 5 section 13, I'm going to quote to you a certain portion of that, and it should give you some idea. This is a pagan historian writing about what was going on among the people of Israel at the time of the writing of Matthew. He says, quote, "...the majority firmly believe that their ancient priestly writings contained the prophecy that there was the very time when the east should grow strong and that men starting from Judea should possess the world." That beginning over in the east, there would be a rising, and there would be a great power that would grow up, and it would come together under the authority of those from Judea, and it would take over the entire empire. Now, this was something that was known even to the Romans, and as a result, it began to be something that they wanted to crush. And so, after the fact, after Jerusalem has been destroyed, after 70 A.D., Tacitus writes this, quote, We have heard that the total number of the besieged of every age and both sexes was 600,000. This was the number of men and women who died in Jerusalem when the Romans finally came in and destroyed the city after four years of a tax revolt that began in 66 AD and ended in 70 AD. Back to Tacitus, uh, there were arms for all who could use them. The whole city was armed. They were handing out swords and spears to men and women, saying, Defend the city. And the number ready to fight was larger than could have been anticipated from the total population. Both men and women showed the same determination. And if they were to be forced to change their home, they feared life more than death. Such was the city and the people against which Titus Caesar now proceeded It was Titus Caesar who came against them in 70 A.D. And he wraps up this little section by saying, quote, the legions were assigned to their several tasks and there was respite of fighting until they made ready, note this, every device for storming a town that the ancients had ever employed or modern ingenuity invented. For years, Titus, planned this invasion of Jerusalem and brought to bear every type of weapon and strategy that the ancient world had devised and that modern technology had created. And he came against them and he slaughtered, it says, 600,000 of them. And to this day, you can go to the city of Rome and you can see the Arch of Titus. And that Arch of Titus has carved into it the depiction of the destruction of Of Jerusalem. This is what was coming. So why do I tell you all that? I tell you all that because it's part of the historical context that's going to make Matthew chapter 2 make sense. Now, in those days, there were kings, Not, not monarchs like we have in our current culture, but these were kings that were made kings by the emperor in Rome. And so there are three in particular I want to look at this morning to help us again get the context. We're going to look at King Herod, we're going to look at King Jesus, and we're going to look at Archelaus. King Herod, King Jesus, and Archelaus. First of all, King Herod, he was Herod the Great. No one else called him Herod the Great, he called himself Herod the Great, but when you're the king, you get to call yourself whatever you want, and people will do what you say, especially when you have a habit of killing them when they don't. He killed wives, he killed children, he killed anybody who got in his way. He was a despotic ruler. He was an absolutely wicked narcissist. And maybe as a result, he was also quite a good politician. In fact, he was known for being quite savvy in the political area. He was quite a cunning diplomat, and he was even a good builder. And one of the things he had to do was try to keep the Jews happy. Because he was a king, but he was given a territory, and the territory that he had was the area that covered Jerusalem and the surrounding areas where the Jews were. And so in order to ingratiate himself to the Jews, he began to rapidly expand the temple that was built when they came back from captivity. Now, I'm going to stretch your Bible knowledge just a little bit here, but bear with me. You may recall that when they came back from Babylon under Zerubbabel and Ezra and Nehemiah... They were allowed to rebuild the temple, and when they did, they rebuilt the temple, but it was rather small compared to what the old men remembered under Solomon, and they gathered together and they, they wept. The old men actually wept. They, they said, this is nothing like what we thought the prophecies foretold. And what Herod does several hundred years later is he begins to rapidly expand the footprint of the temple. And this is why, if you look in your Bible maps at what the temple was like when Jesus was doing his earthly ministry, you'll notice that it's actually called Herod's Temple. Not called God's Temple, it's called Herod's Temple. And Herod was responsible for making it enormous compared to what it was in the days of Nehemiah. And one of the things that he did was he greatly expanded the size of what is called the court of the Gentiles. In order to do that, he had to build a vast engineering feet which was a retaining wall that essentially made more ground on this hilltop and it is the western portion in the inner part of the city on simply that retaining wall to this very day that orthodox jews go and they pray hoping that one day a temple will be restored there it's called the western wall or the wailing wall you may have heard of that I've been there myself, I've visited. If you want to go, you can do that. You just have to line up. There are barricades. You put on a paper yarmulke and you walk inside. And if you're a woman, you can't go, sorry. But imagine, that's all they've got left. they got a few courses of a retaining wall. But this is what they go to to pray. It. This is what Herod built for them. This is the way that he ingratiated himself with the Jews. But unfortunately, there was something Herod did towards the end of his life that was not so strategic he took a golden eagle and he put it up over the temple. The golden eagle was the the symbol and the sign of Rome. And whenever you put a symbol, a national symbol, over the place where the chosen assemble to worship God, you desecrate that place. You never put a national symbol on a house of worship. and That's what they did. And they said, this is blasphemous. And so two of their favorite teachers and 40 of their students took axes and they chopped that golden eagle into pieces, and Herod, in his rage, had them assembled, tried, convicted, and burned alive. It wasn't too long after that that Herod died a grotesque death with all sorts of horrendous diseases when he was in Jericho, and he handed over his authority to his four children three sons and a daughter, and each of them got a portion of the kingdom. But before he could do that, he was warned that there was born in a city just a few miles outside of Jerusalem another king. And it's very interesting when the Magi come, and the Magi say to Herod that there is one born king of the Jews, that that would have definitely triggered him in the modern vernacular, Why? Because one of the things that Herod went out of his way to get for himself was the title, quote, King of the Jews. He was called King of the Jews. That's what was on his little badge that he would wear around the temple, right? That's me, Herod, King of the Jews. And all of a sudden, these magi come from the east at a time when everybody was expecting there to be a king that rose from the east, at a time when people believed that there would be a Messiah who would rise up and over turn the power of Rome, and they say, where is this one born, not made, born king of the Jews, taking Herod's title? That was King Jesus. King Jesus was born king of the Jews. Now, why is that significant? Because I think if you fast forward to the end of Jesus' life, do you remember another Roman leader named Pontius Pilate, what he wrote and put over the cross that was taking the life of our Lord, King of the Jews. And when the Jews said, take that down, Pontius Pilate said, I have written what I have written, it's going to stay. And that's not because Pontius Pilate had been converted. That's because Pontius Pilate knew what the Magi had said. Pontius Pilate had read the minutes from the board meetings back when Herod was the king. He knew what all of this was pointing toward and that this one said he was born king of the Jews. And if Herod couldn't kill the king of the Jews by slaughtering the infants in Bethlehem, then Pontius Pilate had just succeeded in killing him publicly and disgracefully on a cross. And therefore, king of the Jews was written as a way to show that Pontius Pilate Pilate was the real king of the Jews. You see, Christ allowed for all of that in the sovereign plan of God that He would be put to death at the hands of wicked men in order that He might die, to put to death once for all sin and death and hell, and then to rise up to redeem those whom the Father had given Him. But there's one more king, we mentioned him earlier, and that's Archelaus. His name means leader of the people. Ark means leader, and laos, where we get the word laity from. Lay people. It's the people. He's the, he's the king of the people, the ruler of the people. He was actually what was called um, a leader of, a, of an ethnic race. He was a leader of an ethnic race. His sister was given a certain territory, and she was the leader of that territory. But, but here, he was a person who was responsible for leading and overseeing the Jews. And so, once again, he gets into the same thing where he's got to make the Jews happy. It's very interesting that this whole simmering problem with the golden eagle on top of the temple, that was still festering. And when Archelaus comes to power, one of the things that he wants to do very quickly is to be crowned the ruler and then make his way to Rome as soon as possible so that Caesar Augustus could make him a king. I put him down here in the list of kings. He didn't actually get to be a king. He was trying to be a king, but he couldn't quite get the paperwork finished. You see, he knew that he was to be in charge, but his father couldn't make him a king. That was a title bestowed on you by the emperor. So the people begin to rise up immediately, and they're still angry that his father had put to death these two favorite teachers and 40 of their students. And so they begin to wail and moan and lament, and they're causing all of this trouble, and they're whining and crying and crying. It's Passover. Everybody's in the city. Archelaus just wants to secure his territory, go to Rome, get the king title, and come back. The people will not give him any rest. And so he sends some of his men down to just quiet this rebellion. He called it an insurrection. And when the men get there to quiet the people down, what happens? They turn on those men, they stone them, and they kill many of them. Archelaus says, that's it. I'm going to show you who's in charge. And he sends in his soldiers into Jerusalem, into the temple, and kills 3,000 Jews and cancels Passover that year. He slaughters the people, and then he cancels Passover. This is the Archelaus that was in power when Joseph was warned not to go back to the area where he was from, but to Galilee, which was actually being ruled by Archelaus' sister. So that's the context. That's the kings. Now let's talk about the priests. Now there are actually two groups of priests I want to talk to you about this morning. The first one is the chief priests and the scribes. If you look down at your text, you can see very clearly that this was one of the groups that Herod reached out to. When the Magi arrived, he immediately had to cross-reference this with what he understood, and so he gathers together the people that were under his control And he wants all of these scribes and priests to come to him and to inquire about the Christ, the Messiah, that was to be born. Two groups, chief priests and scribes. This is very, very interesting. Very interesting. The chief priests were not the high priests. You may have heard of that term before. Although many of the high priests were part of the chief priests. You see, there were all kinds of priests. Most of you know the priests came from the tribe of Levi. But not everybody who came from Levi could be a priest. You had to actually come from the household of Aaron if you were going to be a priest. So you had all these different ranks of priests, even within the Levites. You had 24 courses or groups of priests that would come to Jerusalem and they would serve two weeks out of the year. The rest of the time they'd go back to their regular day jobs. And then you had some upper-level priests that had worked their way into being the administration of the temple. And then, once in a while... You had a family that could secure the high priestly position. And they, along with the ruling of the Jews through the religious establishment, it was called the Sanhedrin, they were the upper echelon of priests. That's what you have with the chief priests here. All the upper echelon, all the religious ones that were at the top of the the pile. All the powerful religious people, but there's also scribes. Scribes weren't necessarily powerful. In fact, many of the scribes were Pharisees, and Pharisees were kind of the original fundamentalists. They were the ones who wanted to take the scriptures literally. They're the ones who were really looking for a Messiah. They're the ones who were concerned about the law and concerned about obedience and righteousness and holiness. So why would Herod call in both the corrupt, liberal, political people leaders and the fundamentalist, righteous, holy? religious leaders. The reason is this. Herod is looking for, and this is a word you hear a lot today, bipartisan agreement. You see, he's bringing in the religious people from two extremes. He's bringing in the highest-ranking Democrats and the highest-ranking Republicans. I'm not saying which is which. I don't care. point is this. There's two factions, and they are absolutely diametrically opposed to one another, and Herod is a smart guy. He's a wicked guy, but he's a smart guy. And he says, if I can get these two to agree, then I know it's probably true. And so he says, where is this child to be born? And they all agree, Bethlehem. So you would think they must be rushing out to Bethlehem to find the Messiah. No, because they understand that he was to be born king of the Jews, and the current king of the Jews isn't too excited about competition. I wouldn't know that they're necessarily indifferent. I think they're just smart enough to know that it would be a suicide mission to go and try to find this child and to say, Ah, here he is, born king of the Jews. We know that Herod would love to see that child killed because that's exactly the plan he puts into place. But there's another group of priests, and this might come as a surprise to you, but they are the magi. They're often called the wise men. Now, I know that some of you who have been at this church for a while believe that I take a special pleasure out of sort of tearing down all these sweet nostalgic memories of Christmas that aren't actually true. And that's because I do. I enjoy driving the bulldozer of truth, like, into the china shop of, of sentimental Christmas stuff that isn't actually true. And I got some great assistance this week by a sweet little commentary that was given to me at Christmas this year, and this is how I, this is the size I think all commentaries ought to be. <laughs> but, but in here, the author, Erdman, who was a professor at, I believe it was Princeton, said this, and I'm quoting him now, this is so helpful to me. So we'll blame him if he tears down your view of the the wise men and if you now have a little bit more room in your nativity set next year. (laughs) Fancy has been allowed to play so freely with the story of the, quote, wise men from the East that in most minds it is difficult to disassociate the elements of fable from those of fact. It is commonly imagined that these wise men were kings. Uh, that there were three in number, and that their names were Caspar, Malkior, and Balthazar, and that one came from Greece, one from India, and a third from Egypt. All these statements belong to the realm of fiction, as do the descriptions of their journey and the stories of their later life and their baptism by Thomas. It is even said that their bones were discovered in the fourth century by St. Helena and brought to Constantinople and deposited in the church of St. Sophia, subsequently transferred to Milan, and finally brought by Frederick Barbosa to Cologne, where the three skulls are guarded today in a golden shrine in the great cathedral. That's actually true. They are. We have their three skulls if you want to go and take a look at them. Except, of course, we don't. There's all sorts of myth around these. There weren't three There might have been at least three. There were probably a lot more than that. There weren't three. Uh, They weren't actually called wise men. They were called magi, which is the word magician. And in fact, if you were to take a look at your New Testament, there are some other places where this exact same word is used. It is used to describe a man named Simon Magus. Remember him in Acts chapter 8, Simon the magician, somebody who was skilled in the magical arts. It's also used elsewhere here in the book of acts because we have it in acts chapter 13 verse 6 if you go all the way back to one of its first usages that would be relevant here it would be in daniel chapter 5 verse 11 you don't have to turn there but if you were to listen to what it says in daniel chapter 5 verse 11 you would read this and i find it most interesting There is a man in your kingdom in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. In the days of your father, light and understanding and wisdom, like the wisdom of the gods, were found in him. And King Nebuchadnezzar, your father, your father the king, made him chief of the magicians, enchanters, Chaldeans, and astrologers. This is Daniel. Faithful Daniel, who was taken from the land of Egypt. Now, just for a moment, imagine if you had a seminary student graduate who was coming to campaign for a job at your church, and you were looking at his resume, and right at the top of it, it said that he was, in his previous vocation, or at school at least, he was the chief of the magicians, enchanters, Chaldeans, and astrologers. He likely wouldn't make it past round one, would he? You see, these are pagan arts. These are, these are pagan rituals. So what is it that we're talking about here? Well, we're talking about the fact that Daniel, because God was with him and had his hand upon him with the wisdom that was granted, through Nebuchadnezzar was placed over top of these heathen pagan magicians. And because Daniel actually had real power from God, Not only was he able to serve the kings of those days, but he was also able to instruct the existing magicians. I believe that it's very plausible that these magi from the east were the men who came from the line of priests, and that's what they were. They were a priestly line, not of kings, but of king makers whose ancestors had been trained by none other than Daniel, and that is why they knew exactly what to look for, because Daniel had trained them. Now, these were not followers of the Lord. These were not followers of God. They are not referred to as God-fearers. They are referred to simply as those who, in that time, were part of what is called the Medes and the Persians. We see this at the end of Daniel, the portion of Daniel that was written in Hebrew, at the end when these Medes and the Persians took over the Babylonian Empire. From that time forward, these wise men, under the authority of Daniel, were responsible for naming who was going to be king. They all had to pass through them first. That's why these men are there. That's why they've arrived. The magi, the magicians. Well, we could spend a lot more time talking about that, but we'll pass for now because we need to keep moving. The last group is the prophets. And this is what holds the whole section together. Let's go back to Matthew chapter 2 for a moment. We see the first of these prophecies in Matthew chapter 2 and verse 6. They told him, these are the scribes and the chief priests, that in Bethlehem of Judea is where he will be born, because it was written, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judea, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Your Bibles might have this there in a footnote, but in case you didn't know, this is from Micah chapter 5 and verse 2. Micah, a prophet who was bringing judgment upon the people for their wickedness, he says that there will be a great price that you will pay for your insubordination to God, but don't worry because he will not forget you completely and he will raise up from among you a shepherd. What a wonderful vision not just a ruler not just a king not just a strong man but a shepherd who will care for you who will guide you who will love you this is a promise looking forward to messiah there is another prophecy that holds this together and that's hosea chapter 11 verse 1 as we see here in matthew 2:15 and remain there until the death of herod this was to fulfill what the lord had spoken by the prophet Out of Egypt I have called my son. Now, just for the sake of time, we won't go through all of these in great detail, but I would like you to just notice in that particular prophecy, Hosea. You might remember the overall context. Hosea is a prophet called by God, told to marry a woman who is a prostitute. This woman is unfaithful to him. Hosea is nothing but faithful to the woman. The woman's unfaithful to him. She goes out there. She actually has children by other men and it's Hosea who has to give names to these children, and one of the names he gives to one of these children is not my child. How would you like to be raised with that name? You're a walking paternity dispute. Not my child. And yet God says, as an act of love that, that, that foreshadows what I will do for my wicked, adulterous people Israel, I want you to allow her to go the course of her sin, to run through her lover's, To no longer be attractive as a prostitute, to be reduced down to a slave, and to be brought into the slave market, put up on a stand, stripped naked and sold to the public, and I want you to go back at that stage, and I want you to buy her. That's exactly what Hosea does. He buys her back. You know, God says, this is a portrait of what I'm like with the wicked nation of Israel, which to this very day is an apostate nation under the curse of God, rejected Messiah. But one day, he says, I will buy her back She will be mine. And he says here that the other illustration is not as a bride, but as a son. Hosea 11.1, out of Egypt I've called my son. Out of Egypt, in in the course of the Exodus, I've called my son. Why do we know that for sure? Because you go back into Exodus, and if you were with us when we studied that book, you may recall this very important passage in chapter 4 and verse 22. You don't need to turn there, just listen. When Yahweh's talking to Moses, he says this, beginning in chapter 4, verse 22, And you shall say to Pharaoh, Thus says Yahweh Israel is my firstborn son, and I say to you, Let my son go, that he may serve me, and if you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. Israel is the Son of God. And so when the prophets reach back and they grab these texts, they are not saying that the author originally intended for that prophecy to relate to the Messiah because, quite frankly, the original author may have had no idea that that was going to relate to the Messiah. But under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, when Matthew is writing in the New Testament, in the New Covenant, he can reach back, he has the authority from the Holy Spirit as he's writing Scripture to take those Old Testament prophecies and say they are being fulfilled now as it relates to Jesus. The third prophecy comes from Jeremiah 31.15. Take a look at that. We see it in verse 18 of chapter 2. A voice was heard in Ramah weeping in loud lamentation. Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. In the original context, the high place, the hill, Ramah, that is where Rachel, as the matriarch of the descendants both of Israel and of Judah, Stands, as it were, on the top, weeping and watching her children being carried off into captivity to the Assyrians in the north, to the Babylonians in the south. She stands there weeping, lamenting, they are being herded up and taken away. And likewise, Matthew says, in the same way, there is weeping and wailing in Ramah. You know, Ramah was the area where they believe Rachel was buried, just outside the city where these children were slaughtered. And he picks up on that reality and he says, this is happening again, as it were, in fulfillment of that prophecy. And the last one comes to us, the fourth one that holds all of this together, the very last verse of 22. And he lived in the city of Nazareth, so that that which was spoken of the prophets might be fulfilled. He shall be called a Nazarene. You may notice in your outline there is no prophet written there, no name, because we don't know. There is no specific prophecy that we can point to in the Old Covenant where this is said word for word. However, not everything the prophets said were written down. Not everything was an official prophecy foretelling of something in the future. And so Matthew was able to reach back much like Jude did into a book like Enoch, which is not an inspired book, but he pulls out a verse that he can say is, by the Holy Spirit, inspired and true. And without referencing it or citing it, Matthew pulls that out and he says, this is true, he will be a Nazarene. Now please notice, he's a Nazarene and not a Nazarite. A Nazarite was a man or a woman who took a temporary religious vow, They were there to serve the Lord, even if they weren't a Levite. And they had certain rules attached to being a Nazarite. Jesus was not a Nazarite. He was a Nazarene from Nazareth. Nazareth was a place that was not known as being a place where anything good ever came from. In fact, one of the disciples said, could anything good possibly come from Nazareth? Now, before you look down your nose at them and say, my goodness, they're so discriminatory against those poor people, we do the same thing. We do the same thing. I mean, there's several cities that are represented by those of you who are sitting here today, and we could probably rank them in order in terms of their prestige. Shall we begin? No, I won't do that. (laughs) But guaranteed, as you went down that list, the people who were in the most prestigious city would look down on the ones below them, and below them, and below them. I take it all the way down to the bottom, and the people probably in the least prestigious city in all of North County would find someone to look down upon, because that's our nature and that's exactly what's happening here. Could anything good come from Nazareth? Bad enough that you're in Galilee. But Nazareth? I mean, that is the worst part of town. And yet he says it's exactly where this Messiah would come from. Brothers and sisters, as we prepare to go through this text again next week, I just want to make sure that you have this anchoring your thoughts, the context of it, where all of this is coming from. And so as we close today, let me simply read the text again, inserting just some of the thoughts from what we've learned this morning. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, just before he died, behold, Magi from the east, perhaps under the influence of Daniel and those who came after him, came to Jerusalem saying, where is he who was born with the title, born with it, king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and we have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. Why? Because when Herod is troubled, everyone's troubled. They know what Herod could possibly do, and so he assembled all the chief priests, the liberals, and all the scribes, the conservatives, and he inquired of them, hoping for a bipartisan agreement. And sure enough, they delivered it by quoting Micah 5, 2 and saying that he would be born in Bethlehem. So Herod summoned these magi again, and he did it secretly so that he could trick them into thinking that he was actually willing to relinquish his title and go worship the new king. And so he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child. And when you had found him, bring me word that I too may worship him. And after listening to the king, since they didn't know any better, they went on their way. And behold, the star, the sign that they had seen when it rose, and they hadn't seen up until now, popped up again. And it rested, not over a stable with a manger, but over a home. Over a child that was not a baby, but an infant. And when they saw that glory, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother. And they fell down and worshipped him, not her. Mary is only incidental to the story. He was the one they worshipped. They fell down before him. The word means to prostrate oneself. Why? Because they were true worshippers of the Messiah? Possibly but it's just as likely that they were simply heathen kingmakers who said that the signs were that he would be the king of the Jews. Then, opening their treasures, they gave him what you gave to kings, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And being warned in a dream, as God will do for believers and unbelievers alike when necessary, don't return to Herod. They didn't and went home another way. Now, when they had departed, behold, the angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream, and he said, "'Rise, take the child and his mother, and go to Egypt,' because he knew what Herod was about to do. And so he did, and he went to Egypt, therefore fulfilling Hosea 11.1, that out of Egypt I called my son. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by these magi, he was furious, And he went down into this little town of Bethlehem and slaughtered 20 to 30 infants based on the size of the population who were two years old or under to fulfill what Jeremiah had said, that a voice is in Ramah weeping for her children. But when Herod died down in Jericho of a disgusting disease, his lower entrails filled with maggots, behold... An angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph. He said, take the child and go back to the land of Israel. And so he did, but he didn't go back to where he exactly came from because Archelaus, this one desperate for the position of king, was reigning. And he knew he was no better, maybe worse than Herod. And he was afraid to go there. And so in a dream, he was told to go to Galilee, not just to escape Archelaus, but to be in line with divine prophecy. That his child, Jesus, the one he would adopt as his own son, would be known from that time forward, not as a Bethlehemite from the city of David, but as a Nazarene from a city of nowhere. All of that in fulfillment of prophecy that he shall be called a Nazarene. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for powerful way in which your holy scripture proves over and over again that you have... Ordained it from the start, that every single moment of every single day of every single life, be it ours or that of your own Son, have been ordained and are working together for your glory and honor. We thank you for this precious gospel. And as we have taken just one brief pass at it this morning, I pray that we would be faithful to read more carefully this week and then return again here next Lord's Day so that we might be able to move past just the context of the story and into the profound drama of the story and the glory of the story. And may your people be built up and encouraged in all that is said. We pray these things in your name and all God's people Said, Amen.